Welcome to the Driven Woman Podcast, where we're on a mission to empower women with the mindset, tools, and strategies so that they can lead powerfully and authentically in order to make a massive impact on this world. I'm your host, Sophia Bryan. I am so excited today about this guest that I have in the chair. She is someone I think of as absolutely a world changer, a game changer, someone who is unafraid to have challenging conversations about issues. The issue in particular that she's super passionate about is mental health. And we all know that mental health, great mental health, is paramount to the success of a driven woman. So my guest is an author. She's an academic. She is someone who is passionate about making the world a better place through her foundation. She's also really, really terrific because she's Jamaican, right? So you already know that she's going to to be amazing and you're going to learn so much from her. Make welcome Miss Monique Lynch. Hi, Monique. Sophia, thank you so much for having me. I teased the audience a little bit about who you are. I didn't give them too much, but enough for them to be interested in finding out about who you are. My first question to you is, what's your mission? First thing I'd have to declare is to um, help persons develop their purpose so that they Mm -hmm. can live purpose-driven lives. And I am very passionate about mental health. Um, So definitely I want to increase the awareness of mental health and mental illness and to educate persons on how to recognize early signs and symptoms of mental illness and to assist in the reduction of stigma and discrimination of persons diagnosed with a mental illness. Okay. Uh, For most of us, for a lot of people, the passion that we pursue has a lot to do with a story that has happened, whether it's in our lives directly or we see it through a family member or a friend. So what was that moment or event or what's that story that has led to your passion uh, about mental health? I think um, in, in every community growing up, you've, um, we've all experienced um, one person with a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And for me, growing up in Stevie Gardens, there was this one particular person. Mm-hmm. As a child, he would always interact with me and people thought it was weird in fact my parents thought that what he had was transferable so I was banned from talking to him and growing up I've had several interactions with persons with mental illness I've been run down I've been kissed I've been I've been hit I've had liquid thrown on me most persons today would not have been passionate about mental health having had my experiences with persons with mental illness. In fact, I had developed an an absolute fear for persons with mental illness that if I was walking on the road, I would rather be hit down by a bus or a vehicle than to directly pass someone that has a mental illness on the roadside. And I believe the turning point for me um, was when I was pursuing my master's in counseling and social work We had to do a practicum and I decided that I wanted to know the the underlying root of my fear. So Mm -hmm. I 
asked them to place me at the only residential mental health hospital in Jamaica and the Caribbean. When I got there, um, I don't know, something changed. I developed this love. I think I, start, I started to understand the mind, understand the different mental illnesses, the different signs and symptoms and how things played out. And I think I finally understood what mental health was and how everyone, we can, we can all be affected by this. And this is not a death sentence. It was very important. And I believe once you're educated on anything, then you have a better understanding of how it works and the implications for all. So that developed my love for mental health and mental illness. I know that we have an understanding about what your core passion is and sort of what led to that. I really want to zone in on your upbringing as a child. I want our listeners to kind of have an appreciation of where you're coming from, uh, the community that you lived in and what life was like uh, during that stage. What were some of the things that you, you had to deal with and what was your family life like? You know, as much as you're comfortable with sharing, because I really don't want that part to get lost. Um, I mentioned that you're an academic and for persons who are from Jamaica, you know, it's no secret that there is a bit of a struggle to get to this stage coming from a community like that. Even if you have a strong family, but the environment may pose a problem. So I really want you to talk a little bit about that so that persons can really have an understanding of where this woman is coming from. So, yes. So uh, growing up in Seavey Gardens, um, for most persons who live in Jamaica or for persons overseas, Seavey Gardens is really labeled as one of Jamaica's most violent communities. And even though I grew up in... In, in a home where I had both parents and my mm-hmm. mother, she, she's a, a basic school um, teacher and my father, he was a businessman. You find that the environment I would, at that time, I don't think that um, it was one of the easiest um, environments to, to thrive in. There wasn't much person that I could have looked up to. Um, I didn't really have a role model per se. And we, were, we weren't rich. We weren't poor. We weren't really in between either. We were just getting by. And, mm-hmm. you know, primary school was, was okay. Well, when it got to high school, it was a bit of um, the economic had changed and things weren't as good as how they used to. And, Obviously, going to high school, it would be more demanding financially and in all other areas. And I've had days where, or I had years where I I didn't get all of my books. And my parents, I don't think, they tried their best, but they weren't at a stage where they could have guided me into really discovering my purpose to see what I really wanted to do. So I basically chose subjects that were just there and everywhere, things that I was good at, but not necessarily what I really wanted to do in life. I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I had joined the Boys and Girls Scout Troop in TV Gardens. Mm-hmm. That kind of did, um, it kind of guided me in a way in terms of 
um, where I thought I wanted to go. So I knew from an early stage that I wanted to help persons. Um, I knew that I loved people. I knew that I wanted to, to be a role model someday. I've always said that I wanted to leave a great impact, but I just didn't know how, and I really didn't have that guidance at that young age to really guide me towards, you know, developing my purpose, well, finding it and then developing it. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. period was a, was a little bit gray for me. Mm-hmm. I think I really began to see into myself when I got to university. First of all, when you're from a community like TV Gardens, the only way out is through education. It's either you're very good in sports or you go through the route of education. Mm-hmm. For me, I knew that I played football, but I wasn't at that skill level where I knew that would have been my ticket out of Seaview Garden. Mm-hmm. I knew that education was the only way for me. And I think that was the, the foundation for me to mm-hmm. achieve. And the only way that I could create a life, a better opportunity for myself and for my family was through education. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm the only person in my family with a degree, mm-hmm. with a bachelor's degree, with a master's degree. I'm the only person. My family looked towards me for leadership and I knew that a lot would have been placed on me. So I had to focus where education was concerned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So thank you for sharing that just well. Uh, you said that your childhood period, it was, you know, there was a lot of gray, you know, there was a lot of focus on, okay, getting out of this struggle kind of vibes that I'm going through right now. But what made you decide to go to university? Yes, I get that you recognize that education needed to be a priority, but how did you get there? <laughs> uh, what were some of the things that you had to do uh, to find the resources to get there? Um, who did you have to consult to decide what program you'd pursue? Uh, yeah, what was that like? So um, in high school, as about grade nine, we had to choose subjects that we thought would have helped us in our future career. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, I didn't really connect with the sciences or so I thought. So I thought that I would probably be choose business because that w- was easier. And I think that there were much more careers that would fall on the business, given that I didn't know what I wanted to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in life. So I chose the business route all through sixth form. Um, at the end of sixth form, um, due to the fact I couldn't get all of my books, that was a struggle for me throughout high school. I mm-hmm. didn't do as well as I wanted to in my Cape Unit 1 and Unit 2. So I knew in terms of getting a scholarship, I probably would have been out. So the only option I had was to get a student loan. Mm-hmm. So I took that avenue and I knew that that was a responsibility that I had to pay back. So I needed to get my mind right for mm-hmm. university. Mm-hmm. So when I got to university, there was so much pressure for me to do um, actuarial science. My parents thought that that was a career that I needed to go into. So when I actually started university, I was enrolled in actuarial science. Wow. However, after okay. the first semester, I failed two of the four courses in which I got a warning letter. Mm. No, I have never 
failed anything in my life before that. And I think that was the turning point for me. Um, I realized that, hey, I'm taking student loans in which I will have to repay. My parents are not in a position to assist me financially. And um, because of student loan and I was full-time, I didn't have that opportunity to work or so I thought. I wasn't well informed at that yes, time. Yes. I don't know. I, as I said, I didn't have that guidance. Mm-hmm. I, I lacked that guidance that would have assisted me. I think life would have been much different. But mm-hmm. yes, I didn't have that kind of guidance to, to help me to navigate through university life. So in the second semester of my first year, I transferred to social sciences mm-hmm. to pursue economics and statistics. Mm-hmm. Now, it's... Okay. <laughs> It's kind of falls under business, so I was doing fairly well. I think I really started focusing at that time, but I was not passionate about economics. Mm-hmm. However, I ended up completing my degree in economics and statistics, but I fell into depression after graduation. Mm. Um, I found that this was not what I wanted to do. At that time, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that econ and statistics wasn't it. Wow. Uh, so when most of my friends went on to do a um, master's of science in economics, I was home. I was wow. jobless and I couldn't go forward because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And I hit rock bottom. So I fell into depression and it was, well, I was not in a good place. Wow. Um, yes, I wasn't in a good place where that was concerned. I had to do a lot of soul searching to see what is it that I really wanted to do. And this was 2012. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know. So my life was basically at a standstill. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up getting a job a few months later. And after a couple months, I realized that, okay, business is not it. Mm-hmm. This is not what I wanted. Uh, so after what three years after um, completing my first degree, I finally decided to pursue a career in social work. Okay. Um, because I've always known that I wanted to help persons. I've always and I and I got a, a I got a, a well I had persons in my space that were guiding me at this time. Mm-hmm very important to have persons who are able to guide you correctly right so I was able to look into myself to to pinpoint the stuff that I'm good at Mm -hmm. pinpoint my worldview pinpoint my morals and my values and my standards and what I really wanted to achieve and if I had to look at my life in another 50 years, what were the things that I would want to be associated with my name? Mm-hmm. And when I got that guidance to really ask myself those hard questions, I realized that, hey, social work would have been the best fit. I love people. I love to add to the system. I like to contribute. I want to help to change the way people's Um, life are going, their mindset. And I realized that I was in the best community to actually do all that practice work on because there were so many persons that I grew up with that didn't even complete high school. Even though I thought I wasn't in the best place, there were persons who were in worse 
situations than I was. They didn't have the opportunities that I had, even though I thought my opportunities were very limited. Mm. And I felt that, you know, I was in the best place to to really assist and to, to make a difference starting from my community. So when I decided to pursue social work um, as my master's, it was really a best Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's when my life actually started changing. And I think it begins when I found out who I was. Yes, yes. All right, so, um, okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm just, still soaking up all that you've said and um, I know that everyone who listens to this podcast is going to be so intrigued to go and dig up who you are so you kind of had an experience I had with regarding university because doing well in high school and then getting to university and realizing that oh crap there is a gap between this moment, starting university or college, and what I'm going to be doing for the next, say, 25 years. It it, it was as though I didn't have the vision or someone didn't say to me, you know that you need to be able to see beyond 21. You need to be able to see beyond the three years of university or college. And that just was not apparent to me. And I wasn't prepared for the different pitfalls, the different things that pop up during college life. And mm. I was just dead in the water, as one of my uh, lecturers would say. I literally had to get my life together and uh, figure this thing out because it's not just, you don't just show up and things work out. Like, but no one teaches you that unless you have some serious mentoring and serious guidance. And what I really want to drive home to the listeners right now is that if you are in a position where you have the opportunity to mentor someone uh, or to be a guiding light for someone, you should do it because you will save someone a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of uh, depression because you will not put them in a position to ask themselves the hard questions as you put it. What's that lasting legacy that I want to leave the world? And what are the things that I need to do? What would, what would be the best fit for me based on my skills and talents? I'm so glad you were able to highlight that without me even asking you. Yes. All right. So uh, you are an author and you've written two books. Uh, three books, actually. It's three, right? Uh, I have six books now. Oh, it's six! Wow. Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was the guide for self-publishing, which I need to get um, ASAP. Uh, I know about the the workbook that you have about body confidence, and I know about your right. last book. So I want you to speak briefly about your body positive uh, book workbook. Uh, don't go too deep because that's not what I read. I want to talk about the, the last book, especially. But talk a little bit about what led you to writing that book and what were some of the, maybe what's that one feedback that or review that you've gotten that really surprised you when you wrote that book? Well, one of the, the feedback that really shocked me was that so many persons are struggling in private. 
Mm, and okay. many times we, we, we tend to look at persons and we look at their social media and they, they look happy and life seems to be going well, but we don't know the hidden suffering that they're going through because mm. people don't display their hardship. They don't display their suffering. They don't, they don't go, hey, I am sad today. You don't get to see that. And I think um, that book, me stepping out and admitting that I had issues with my self-confidence. I had mm-hmm. issues with how I look. I couldn't separate how I look from who I was or mm-hmm. who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very important mm-hmm. to, to separate how you look physically from who you are. Because who you are is not about how you look. Right, right. And so many women are caught up into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But do you, do you think that uh, how you look, though, it can complement who you are as a person or you're yes. able to communicate who you are? With yes, you know, but, but it's not the main thing. That's the point. It shouldn't define you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you're having a bad hair day one day, it shouldn't be that, oh, I have no value because my hair doesn't look perfect. Because you're a whole person, regardless of how you look. That's interesting, though. And I really want you to, um, I really want to go back to what you said about people being unhappy or sad, you know, not wanting to admit sadness. Because one of the interesting feedback I got from the launch of this podcast, someone said to me that, you know, if I really wanted to share my story so soon. And I was kind of taken aback because I'm thinking this is my story and I need people to understand who I am and where I'm coming from. There's a lot more to my story than what I shared, but I felt like it, it was important for me to share with persons that um, these were the circumstances under which I grew up. And the person said it was so sad And I thought to myself, why are people so afraid to embrace emotion? Why are people so afraid to be sad or to expose themselves? And I think it's because of the fear of getting reactions like the one I got that probably has led to a lot of people holding back their true selves and holding back their true feelings because What's wrong if your story is sad or one aspect of your story is sad? Are you, you get, you're getting what I'm saying? Yes. Right. What is so wrong with a situation being sad, but recognizing that that's only a part of your life and that's an area that you dealt with because life isn't all roses. And, and um, I'm guessing when we get to the other book, maybe that will, you know, that kind of conversation um, not wanting to admit sadness or not wanting to be exposed emotionally has led to a lot of turmoil um, in the, where mental health is concerned. Well, I'm really loving this. So um, I'm going to speak about, I wanted to talk about the last book that you've done and then give you an opportunity to just give a synopsis of the other works that you've done so that persons can check it out if they want to. Um. Uh, I'm not sure which 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 is the last book you've seen. The last oh oh <laughs> the last one I saw was the one where uh an international publisher reached out to you where you spoke about mental health in Jamaica and gender-based violence or domestic violence. 
that's the one I really want you to zoom in on. Oh, okay. Uh, so what led to that work? First of all, um, I feel like we're probably going to have to do a part two or something like that. But what led to that work? What have been some of the findings? And if you could speak a little bit about how you kind of got discovered. <laughs> All right. So let me answer the last one first. Mm-hmm. So I work at the University of the West Indies. And mm-hmm. as an academic staff, we are expected to publish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In order for us to, to move up, in the ranks we have to publish because we want all information do you teach no i'm a program coordinator Mm -hmm. for the who collaboration center Mm -hmm. okay right so um research is embedded we have to do research and we have to publish Mm. um however i was very intrigued um with the murder-suicide rates and how they have tripled over the last 10 years in Jamaica. Mm. So I decided that I wanted to investigate, um, you know, investigate the situation. I found out that most of the murder-suicide um, incidents are among security forces. So, these- mm. so at first, when I wanted to do this research, I could not get any um, approval from JDF and from the police force, JCF. We like to keep things under the lid. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I've, I've, and I think not, I'm not the only person who have recognized that it has been one of the most noticeable components in the last recent years of social change in Jamaica, where our murder-suicide rates have just been increasing on rapid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, many persons view this as an as a indication of, of ethical and social disruption, but it, 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 it's really intriguing to, to realize that out of the 15 incidents, 14 out of 15 were males perpetrators. Oh. Wow. Okay. And these are all persons who has legal, has a legal gun. Mm-hmm. These are all done by, by gun. And... All the victims, except for one case, were females. And this was alarming for me to realize. And even children are sometimes involved in these incidents where men kill the entire family, then commit suicide. Mm-hmm. It has been a major, major, major issue in Jamaica. And um, I wanted to really do some research on this. However, the research was done on... 100 men mm-hmm. um, across eight parishes in Jamaica. Really? Okay. I didn't know it was so deep. Okay, go on. Yes. And I really investigated the insecure attachment, meaning how they were brought up. Because um, from the research, I realized that most of these persons had um, unstable, um, they had an unstable childhood and which tipped off into their adulthood in which men felt that women were their property. And if they have claimed you as their own, if you leave, you have to die. Mm. And it was very alarming, um, even though the questionnaires, which was one of the methods that I used to collect the data, um, men actually stated on, and it was anonymous, but men actually stated that if their girlfriend or wife 
chose to leave, they would kill them. Are you serious? Like yes, they, that was one of my questions. They were constant, they were so emboldened or they're so convicted by that fact or this fact that they've created in their mind, this narrative. They're so convicted that they were willing to actually verbalize it. That they would kill them. And I'm saying these are the persons that are trained to serve. These are the persons that are in our society. And there are many, many more of them that maybe I didn't mm-hmm. reach out to to, get to to be included in this research, but have the same mindset. Mm-hmm. That women are objects and they, it's, a, it's an ownership, not a relationship. Ooh. So if you leave, you must die. All right, and because I'm- they don't want to face the, the penalty or... They don't want to face up to what they have done. They commit suicide because the suicide rates are sky high. Okay. All right. So in your study, did any of them actually say that in the event that, okay, so they're of the view that if the partner leaves, then, you know, there's only one road to deal with it. But did any of them say that they prefer to, take their own lives or none of them actually thought through it like that? Well, a follow-up question would have been, would you allow yourself to be arrested or would mm-hmm. you have turned yourself in? Mm-hmm. And 95% of them said no. Okay. They would not allow themselves okay. to be okay. arrested or they would not turn themselves in. So there's a lot that can be deduced from that Wow. Yes, a lot can. Yeah. Okay, so are able are people able to buy this book specifically? The book is available on Amazon. Wow. I ca- I didn't realize that you yes. put so much work into that. Wow. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's you know someone who is very passionate about promoting healthy relationships and eliminating gender-based violence. And of course, I do that through various means. It is so... I really appreciate having conversations with persons like you who have done the scientific side of it. So it's clear that, yeah, the the fact that I'm so passionate about empowering women, seeing more women women rise to the occasion as leaders and uh, take charge of their lives. It's not because I don't like men. It's not because I'm a man hater. It's because more women need to actually see themselves as things or as beings that are of value and that are able to contribute value and will not stand for being treated as an object. It's because of that. It's not because I have a problem with men. We need men in our society. We need protectors. We need protectors. We need providers. But in the event that there aren't any, why should women suffer? You get what I'm saying? You know, I guess every man sees themselves as strong. But when we have the men who are actually on the front lines, when other men see their fragility in this sense, and how I'd say vicious they can be, I feel like it's an inspiration to the average man or uh, it, it may encourage the average man to feel like that's the appropriate way to deal to with handle. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So I hope that you do a follow up, maybe with regular people. Um, yes. Wow. Oh, all right. Uh, so I am. I'm truly impressed with the work that you've done so far, and uh, I'm happy that you decided to look into this because um, this was a real situation uh, that. It, it triggers me so much because I, I know what gender-based violence can do to a woman, can do to a family. And I'm so glad that you took the time to do this kind of work. All right. So I feel, as I said, I feel like we're going to need to do like a part two. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, my last couple of words, uh, sentences. So what, how do you stay driven? Uh, what keeps you going? What keeps you motivated? What keeps you driven? When you see the results of your labor, mm. that gives me another push. Yes. Yeah. So as an author, I know that you are inspired by many other authors. Uh, so is there a book that has really supported your growth or has changed the trajectory of your life? Uh, yes. What book is that? Mm-hmm. Dr. Miles Monroe, um, the vision of your purpose. Mm, the vision of your purpose. Okay, uh, I've heard of Miles Monroe. Um, I've actually watched some of his YouTube videos, you know, and there was this quote that was in my journal for, for a long time. Uh, something to the effect that your, your very existence is evidence that you are needed for this time. Something to that effect. Uh, yeah. uh, your very existence is evidence that you are meant to be here, that you are needed for this time. So with that, uh, thank you so much, Lady Lynch. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yes, um, and I'm so excited to, to share this podcast uh, with my listeners. It was my absolute pleasure to have you join us for this episode of the Driven Woman podcast. Be sure to visit sophiabryan.com for my complimentary platform masterclass. In this masterclass, I show you the key steps to strategically share your unique message, even if you're scared to put yourself out there. Leave us a rating on iTunes if you loved this episode. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Driven Woman Podcast and Driven Woman Show on Twitter. Until next time, stay driven.